0: is Emily Nagoski, but also,
1: I don't know how to introduce myself,
0: the marital euphemism. <laughs> this is Richard. Hi. Uh, he's the person who usually edits the podcast. Amelia, as regular listeners will know that she has ongoing COVID fatigue, but also her semester has started. So she is way overwhelmed and we're giving her the week off. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking to oh. my marital euphemism who does the editing, yeah. uh, specifically about a book that I recently read because of a few conversations I'd had, one with him, but also with my therapist. We're going to talk.
1: I I am not the therapist.
0: You are not even a little bit my therapist. (laughs) But both of you have uh, talked with me about hope and what it means and what it's supposed to do for people. And those descriptions of hope never described my relationship with hope. So of course, what is the first thing I do when I'm feeling puzzled by something.
1: You read a scientific paper on the matter.
0: Yeah, in this case, I read a book of moral philosophy. A moral philosopher named Adrienne Martin wrote a book that's called How We Hope, very simply. She begins with a history, well, like a brief history of philosophical representations of hope and her new formulation of it, which made a lot of sense to me and helped me to understand the ways in which I think my hope is broken relative to other people's hope. And that empowers me to talk about hope in a more pragmatic way when I'm trying to help people sustain their well-being through the election, which is the whole purpose of this podcast. So is
1: is this what Rogue One was based on?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing. Rogue One is my favorite Star Wars movie, you know. And the moral of the story is revolutions are built on hope.
1: That's how I feel about The Phantom Menace.
0: (laughs) And it is... Maybe an interesting point that that's my favorite Star Wars movie when I don't understand what hope is.
1: Well, it is the darkest Star Wars movie, yet it has the most important hopeful act.
0: Yes! Yes! Total, literal sacrifice. Yeah, lots of them. Lots of them! It explains why there are no brown people in any of Episodes 4, 5, and 6. Say, hey,
1: let's not and also (laughs) let's let's not erase lando from this
0: yeah there is one brown person one black person he's
1: amazing and beautiful and the only person having a good time other than the emperor
0: yeah i this is the sound of me paging through my notes that i took while i was reading this this uh, book that i really recommend if you're interested in thinking critically about the nature of hope this was published in 2014 uh and it offers i think a lot of insight And let me also take this opportunity to say, if there's any teenagers listening, anyone early in their college career, minor in philosophy. If you're not gonna major in philosophy, definitely take logic, definitely take epistemology, and definitely take a moral philosophy or an ethics class. Those classes that I took in my undergrad degree are maybe the most valuable classes that I had. Now, 20 years later, those are the skills that I return to the most. And I find myself most nourished by philosophical work. Well, They're,
1: they're very reusable. It's like learning to write is yeah. never a bad idea. It's a
0: like a way of thinking clearly and systematically outside of your rage or your agenda that feels tremendously empowering. So it's a skill set that I did not have when I went to college and I learned it in those classes, classes that I did not enjoy. (laughs) I dropped from a philosophy major to a philosophy minor. Really? Because I disliked epistemology so much. And now I feel like it's the most important class I took. I don't
1: actually know what epistemology is.
0: It is, how do I know what I know? How do we know that you know that? Okay. Right. And to a frustrated 19 year old second semester freshman in college, I was like, fuck you. I just know. Why do we have no Why we know? And the older I got and the more so, I began to think critically and deeply about issues, the more I was like, that is an extremely important question.
1: Yeah, but I can still see you asking that and, and saying that. You're very certain.
0: Philosophy, it's super helpful. However, it's also typically wrong. There's a lot of it in history. Usually what you get when you take history of philosophy is a history of Western philosophy, which they define as beginning with the Greeks. I'm actually gonna skip over all the Greeks because- Are you
1: saying that Western culture is not the only culture?
0: (laughs) I'm saying Western culture isn't really a thing. Okay. It's sort (laughs) of a fictional fantasy. Got it. We're gonna start instead with Aquinas. Okay. Who you've heard of because you were raised Catholic.
1: Yeah, I was raised Catholic yet uh, somehow made it out without superstition.
0: Hooray! Sort of. I mean, apart from Bigfoot. Bigfoot's real. Exactly.
1: I've met him. (laughs) A friend of mine sent me a picture yesterday. He lives in a national park now and he sent me a picture walking around with his butt exposed. So Bigfoot is real.
0: This is genuinely what uh, our conversations are like. Sorry. (laughs) Because I try to explain something that feels sort of serious, and then... <laughs> I'm sorry. Rich provides the content worth listening to. No. No. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas, but Bigfoot.
1: You said Bigfoot, not know. I know. I
0: brought a, you're right. I brought him up. Her, it, them?
1: Yeah. Probably them.
0: Probably them. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's begin with an inaccurate historical definition of sub-rational appetites. Okay. Thomas Aquinas pauses there are two subrational appetites the first is concupiscible appetites okay. which is our capacity to be attracted to things that are good
1: that doesn't sound good
0: and repelled by things that are bad okay Right. So that's very simple. Like, ooh, what's that? And of course, I think of it in terms of the rat research I've read where you zap the yeah. nucleus accumbens and the rat goes, oh, what's that? Ooh. So concupiscible appetite, think the nucleus accumbens shell zapping the front and you get a rat to explore with curiosity, approach things that are potentially good. And then there's also zap the back of the nucleus accumbent shell. And the rat goes, what the hell is that? And wants to avoid it.
1: But they're both the same thing.
0: So yes, that's the concupiscible appetite.
1: So it's just two halves of the same thing.
0: And the second, this is one of my favorite phrases. And I originally wanted to title this episode, irascible appetite.
1: I mean, I may still.
0: And I have a very, by this definition, I have a very strong irascible appetite. That irascible appetite is the capacity to strive against obstacles to achieve the good thing, or avoid the bad thing.
1: So it's more antagonistic?
0: It's persistence. Okay. It's the willingness, it's the little monitor sort of. Okay. So you're, people can check back with the little monitor episode, which assesses your progress toward a goal. So if your goal is to move toward the object of your concupiscible appetite, you're gonna use your irascible appetite to overcome any barriers that stand between you and that thing. So
1: it's more adversarial. In a way, no.
0: Well, I mean, in a, if for a person who frames any obstacle as an adversary to be fought sure. rather than a challenge to be overcome, or a, there's some, you can have it without having a battle.
1: Okay.
0: But sometimes it's a battle. So Thomas Aquinas says that hope is an irascible passion. It is simply your capacity to strive against obstacles toward a goal, which points to the... Problem with hope that I have.
1: Sounds very religious. In
0: my life. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, since then, moral philosophy has evolved its understanding of hope to this orthodox definition offered by Adrienne Martin, where she says, This is so the, here's the orthodox definition of hope it is a desire for an outcome and the belief that the outcome is possible but not certain. Okay. So a desire for an outcome and the belief that it is possible but not certain.
1: It can happen, but it's not guaranteed. That's hope. Okay.
0: Yeah. And that feels intuitive.
1: Hard to argue with that definition.
0: Sure. So it applies to what philosophers call the least common denominator hope. Like, I sure hope it's sunny tomorrow for our picnic. Or.
1: I sure hope there's coffee in the morning when I wake up. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I sure hope.
1: I sure hope. Biden
0: wins the election.
1: I was going to say, I sure hope Trump has his stroke on the toilet at 4 a.m. where he's furthest away from being able to call someone.
0: <sighs> Sorry. And Adrian Martin's point of view about hope derives, she says, in the introduction of the book, not just from reading philosophy, but from her experience working in a lab that does phase one trials of cancer drugs. Okay. So phase one trials are where they're just testing safety. So people who participate in these trials are either people who are not sick and they're just receiving the drug for safety just to see if they have any adverse reactions, or they are patients with cancer that is not responding to any other
1: treatment. So we'll take a chance.
0: Yeah, so it's a compassionate care kind of treatment or they're participating because they wanna be part of medical research that maybe will create better outcomes for other patients in the future. So even
1: if it doesn't help them, it's meaningful?
0: Yeah, Yeah. exactly, exactly. And the question is, what is the difference between the patients participating in phase one medical trials where it's just about safety. And there's really uh, no chance that it's it would be shocking and a remarkable coincidence if it actually helped them.
1: So these aren't even proven to be cancer cures. No,
0: not at all. We they're, just want to
1: prove that they're not poisoned. We first. just
0: want to prove that it doesn't do harm to people.
1: <laughs> not poison.
0: Before we begin assessing. It's the same thing they're doing with the vaccine. They just want to right. test. Does this vaccine cause terrible health consequences or even slight health consequences for a large number of people. Because either way, that's a lot of harm being done, uh, even before you ask the question of whether or not it does what it's supposed to do. It's a phase one medical trial. And there were some patients who were participating in phase one medical trials whose point of view was, I know it's possible that I might get some medical benefit from this treatment, but it is one in a 1,000, right? And there were some people who were like, I know it's one in a thousand, but there is some chance.
1: I could be that one.
0: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So that's kind of hope. And so the question she developed was, what is this thing called hope? Under what circumstances does it do us good? (laughs) And she derived from her experience and from her reading in moral philosophy the uh, incorporation model. Of hope so let me talk about so this is her thesis that hope is a combination it's an incorporation of you're attracted to some desirable outcome
1: mm-hmm.
0: you have some assessment of its probability as okay. being like 0% chance to 100% okay. chance and you use those assessments both of the desirability and the probability as justifications for feelings, thoughts, and plans. OK. Right? So I, yeah. you are hopeful when there is some desirable outcome. You perceive it as being not impossible, but not definite.
1: There's a good thing out there that could happen.
0: And because you perceive it as a thing that could happen, you make the choice to maybe like do something out in the world, like participate in a medical trial, mm-hmm. or take a new drug, or try a new surgery or uh, vote, or work for a campaign, or work on a degree on the idea, on the hope that if you accomplish this goal, the good thing will happen.
1: And certainly the good thing couldn't happen if you didn't.
0: And Adrienne Martin spent, well, that is an important piece of it that the book doesn't actually delve really deep into, that I'm gonna talk about. So if I don't talk about it, remind me to be like, but what about agency? What about agency?
1: Well, if there's no agency, it's basically just like a lottery you didn't have to buy a ticket for.
0: Because my undergraduate degree is basically in cognitive psychology and it is called agency. Like my ability as an agent to act in the world Mm -hmm. and make change. And my master's degree is in counseling psychology where it's called locus of control. Okay. Do I have control over these events happening in my life or these outcomes that I would like to see in my life? That's locus of control. My PhD is in public health where it is called self-efficacy. Can I, do, am I effective in myself in creating the outcomes that I am looking for?
1: So you've looked into this.
0: This is a variable that shows up in every domain of thinking about human behavior. <laughs> I have thought about it a yeah. little bit. One
1: would imagine it does. as.
0: And it doesn't, really show up it's not really addressed in this book about the nature of hope and i feel like that's my primary question about hope
1: i wonder i wonder if that's because the book is tainted by older religious definitions of hope where maybe you don't have agency
0: except that Sorry, thomas aquinas's whole definition is about your capacity to strive against obstacles yeah but
1: never underestimate the catholic church not making sense
0: because uh, of course aquinas is good ultimate good is god sure so your irascible passion is your capacity to strive against obstacles to achieve holiness mm-hmm.
1: place god there.
0: connection with god go to heaven or and whatever
1: place thereby the same god right <laughs> gotta love it
0: right that's the thing is if you have irascible passion it was a gift from god and yeah. be so grateful that god gave no, i no. Let's well, not even no, please, i can
1: please give us some money for our wine <laughs> yeah.
0: would you like another drink That was my
1: first bartending job, was being an altar boy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. so I'm
1: basically AOC. We're
0: going to come back to the question of agency or locus of control or self-efficacy. To conclude, Adrian Martin's definition of hope is basically this. Your assessment of the probability of an attractive outcome justifies your plans, your thoughts, and your feelings. And she spends a lot of time talking about hope as a justification for hopeful fantasies about the desirable outcome. So imagining a world where Joe Biden takes the oath of office. He's sworn in and he takes over. And on the very first day, he undoes the global gag rule the way Trump put it in place on the day he was inaugurated. Okay. Right? Like, I you, my hope justifies. Was... Emily, how can you justify spending your time fantasizing about a world where that happens? It's my hope. How well, can I not?
1: It's also not an irrational thing to hope for. I mean, he's one of the people running for president, and the per- previous person who got sworn in made a gag rule.
0: Right. Who else is going
1: to undo such a thing? It's not and like you're asking for 25 lightning strikes.
0: As a matter of fact, uh, like, technically, it is true that nobody has any tool available for assessing the likelihood of it, because there are so many once-in-a-lifetime variables between Russian interference, the president directly undermining the quality of the election, and COVID. Mm -hmm. Three, once-in-a-lifetime events simultaneously, nobody has any idea what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The only thing we can know for certain is that buckle up.
0: Yeah. And so it's easy to justify hopeful thoughts and feelings and plans.
1: Question. Is the assessment itself hope?
0: The justification okay. is the hope.
1: So I make the assessment to receive a justification, which is the hope.
0: You do the assessment of the probability. Okay. Yes. And then you use that assessment of the probability of this desirable outcome okay. to justify thoughts, feelings, and actions. Okay.
1: So in a way you make your own hope.
0: Yes. And when I was talking about this with my therapist, She said, well, a lot of people would use their assessment that something is not likely to happen as a justification to have no hope and therefore to do nothing, to make no plans. And that's where my hope, by this definition, my hope is broken Hmm. because I feel like there is no assessment of the probability of an attractive outcome, thinking about the election, that justifies any behaviors or lack of behaviors, any feelings or lack of feelings, any plans or lack of plans. So what
1: what do you define as broken? Because it seems to me like you have some hopes. I have things I
0: hope for, but I never, like the fact that I perceive it as extraordinarily vanishingly unlikely that Biden's going to become president You would never know that to look at my behaviors and my choices and...
1: So it's not that you're not saying your hope is broken in the sense that you're a hopeless individual with no hope.
0: Exactly. I don't have no hope. I have hope and my hope is broken. But
1: what you're saying is maybe the circuit,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it's it's not exactly tied to things that you can prove. Yeah. So you've you've gone religious on us here.
0: Tell me more about that. Well,
1: I mean, if you think about it, if you have no facts to back it up, but you believe in heaven, I mean, is your hope broken? You
0: have just anticipated my grand finale. I'm sorry. Where I was gonna like say cool shit and like uh, but you went there already because you were raised religious and you understand people's relationship well, I, I guess I For just, the record, just so people know you didn't tell me this. I was not raised, you did you were not told <laughs> any of this. I was raised without uh, any specific
1: religion. I blew the ups.
0: I'm an atheist. You oh no, you I'm kidding. You gave away. Actually, probably there were a lot of people feeling like that.
1: I yell at the radio a lot while I listen to things, <laughs> so this is kind of a dream for me.
0: So, yeah, I, there is no relationship between my lack of expectation that an outcome is going to happen and my actions i do it anyway even though i don't expect it to happen i'm gonna vote we just voted in the primary
1: wearing the sticker voted
0: in a primary election for crying out loud
1: ed markey's very cute
0: we're gonna put a sign in our yard we're gonna do the things
1: i guess what tripped me though was i I was feeling really uh, against the concept of your hope being broken Hmm. because you still have hope and you still make you still do things in the world. And I was gonna ask you like my definition of broken hope would be if you tried nothing.
0: Right. Exactly. I, just, I
1: couldn't I couldn't grasp That's that.
0: That's because your hope is not broken. You feel like there is a relationship between hope and choices.
1: Maybe, sure. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with it's that. It's sort of
0: like built into the assumption that okay. there's a relationship but You assess me as having hope because I do certain things okay. that look like I'm working toward a goal. So maybe
1: I'm looking at a person who says their hope is broken as a person who has the loop functioning at the moment. Yeah. Okay, okay. Fair like,
0: enough. Like, no, well, so to be hopeless is...
1: I guess that's different than hope broken.
0: Yeah, to to have an attractive goal and have a sense that there is zero probability that anything you do is going to make that outcome happen. That's hopelessness. Okay. But when, again, your non-actions are motivated, are justified by your assessment of the probability. You justify your actionlessness by your assessment of the probability.
1: And if you look at it coldly, that's perfectly logical
0: sure yeah though it's also self-fulfilling because yes. if you don't work towards something of yes. course it's not going to happen
1: it's like you take away your own agency and you've proven the point and now you're stuck in the right hole exactly
0: and, and a lot of people in therapy have that dynamic and depend on their therapist to point out you know of course if you never try of course you you know yeah. you lose 100 percent of the games you don't play
1: uh, and even worse you become a gamer right you know and you just <laughs> sit at home all night
0: feeling sorry for yourself
1: yeah jumping on mushrooms Jumping
0: yeah. on mushrooms? Super Mario
1: Brothers. Oh, Super
0: so bro- You're talking about literal yeah, yeah, in the game. Yeah,
1: sorry. It's the most violent video game I know of.
0: <laughs> Have you played Animal Crossing?
1: I'm very aware of it, but I'm afraid that I wouldn't understand.
0: Okay. I am not a gamer at all. My so friends love know.
1: it very much. You would like it, there's turnips.
0: Oh, thunder came to say hi,
1: It's basically Hello, a peaceful tiny game.
0: Bear. Tiny bear. Nope, nope, nope. So
1: I'm sorry, I kinda of blew the episode. There. Okay. Where are you going? No. With this?
0: Okay. So here is my big reveal. What How We Hope says is that the uh, hope is a sustaining energy. Mm-hmm. It keeps us working through trials. When we're being challenged, hope is motivating to continue working, but it is contingent on that assessment of the probability, right? Mm-hmm. But there is such a thing as a non-contingent sustaining hope.
1: Non-contingent sustaining hope.
0: A hope that cannot be interfered with. Like you already know that it's a vanishingly small probability of happening. Like you or or it's so here's what she calls. She calls it an unimaginable hope. When your hope, the thing you hope for, is something that is not within the experience of anybody.
1: So like afterlife kind of not in the experience of anybody or just like unreasonable, I'm going to become a millionaire if I buy this scratch ticket.
0: Her name for this unimaginable hope is Faith. Okay. So, and what makes this non-contingent, what makes it totally undisturbable is that because it's unimaginable, there is nothing that can happen that can lower the likelihood of it happening. So
1: when you say non-contingent, you mean I'm going to have this hope no matter what other evidence I ever There's receive.
0: literally nothing I can encounter. It's built in. That's going to reduce, because it's, I can't, I don't even know what it's going to look like when it happens. I don't know what a just America truly looks like. I don't know how we get there. I don't know what it looks like. It's an unimaginable hope. Mm-hmm. But I work toward it because I have hope that we can get there. And that I, in my tiny, tiny way, can contribute toward that. And I think this is why, in like mm. May, I was thinking my next step needed to be Divinity School.
1: Yeah, that was a thing for a bit and there.
0: And it has not gone away.
1: Yeah. Harvard Divinity School.
0: Yeah. Specifically yeah. because it's difficult to find a Divinity School that is not uh, aligned with a particular set of religious ideas. Oh, oh, oh. We can maybe put those things on a table so she doesn't eat them.
1: Yeah. What was that? A uh, divinity school at what?
0: That is not associated with a particular uh, religious affiliation. Okay. Whereas Harvard Divinity School does accept people who don't have any specific religious affiliation or any specific faith. As an atheist, it, there are very few divinity schools I would be accepted into. Right, right,
1: right. <laughs> and, and they might look at you as an atheist and be like, oh, you seem fun.
0: But so, so I spent a lot of time reading sort of a theory of religion, trying to understand where I might fit in a divinity school, and I didn't find it. Where did I find information about where I might fit? Obviously it was not within a theory of religion, it was within a theory of hope, hmm. a moral philosophy text. It's
1: like an abstracted version of religion, really. Yeah,
0: it's, it's secular it's... faith. My faith is not yeah. in any god, is not in any supernatural critter. My faith is in The potential of humans. It's like
1: you stripped out the good part.
0: It is an open question for me. uh, What is the relationship between religion and hope? Mm -hmm. I think religion is for people who have intact hope because it's this really mundane, repetitive ritual.
1: It's like a formalized hope.
0: Yeah, that like reminds you of your hope. It's a thing you do. It's It's a thing that is justified by your assessment of the probability.
1: Kind of like if you need to go to CrossFit as opposed to you just love to run.
0: In fact, students at the Harvard Divinity School have been investigating the ways that CrossFit fulfills religious functions in people's lives.
1: I mean, they're very loud and they bump into me a lot. So I mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's what counts as so There are religious... large
1: groups of people that irritate me on a schedule. So I have
0: notes that... in other places in my book about sort of like what the parallels sure. are. So there is a poem. By Rumi, of course, because a Sufi medieval poet has a lot to say about the quality of my life right now as a 21st century middle class white lady.
1: I mean, they're basically the same.
0: They're yes, Rumi and I.
1: You and Rumi, Moana,
0: brothers from another mother. Yep. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at it on my phone. I'm gonna look at it on my phone. If I didn't
1: edit the show, I'd have zero exposure to poetry. <laughs> Sorry I guessed the end there. I kind of ruined the Silence of the Lambs for my mom that way.
0: How did you ruin the Silence of the Lambs? I just guessed
1: from the beginning what was going on.
0: Okay. Here is the poem, even though this is... My worst habit is I get so tired of winter. I am a torture to those I'm with. Again, Rumi and I... Yeah. We're the same person.
1: Not a fan of winter.
0: He says, addressing God, If you are not here, nothing grows. I lack clarity my words tangle and knot up. How to cure bad water, send it back to the river. How to cure bad habits, send me back to you. And then we get to the really big part, right? When water gets caught in habitual whirlpools, dig a way out through the bottom to the ocean. Which we'll probably end up doing a whole episode on my blueberry pie depression metaphor, Remember my blueberry pie depression metaphor that I have no, to sort I'm of really go through hungry. it. <laughs> so we'll we'll probably have to do a separate episode sure. on it. But basically, when I get into deep depression, I, if I struggle against it, uh, oh, it, it gets worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to allow myself to sink down through it,
1: kind of like quicksand, where you, where you don't fight, dig away
0: out through the bottom, Swim just gently get pulled down, dig through the whirlpool. And plop yourself out at the bottom. Don't fight against it. Allow yourself to move through it.
1: I don't think a lot of people uh, operate that way. That's, they they definitely system. don't.
0: But uh, it's intuitive to me because my hope is broken. Well, it
1: makes a lot of sense. I think it's a great.
0: Because so that was when water gets caught in habitual whirlpools dig away out through the bottom to the ocean. And the next sentence is there is a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so hard they can't hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. And I never knew before a name for the secret medicine. And Adrian Martin has given me the word, the secret medicine given to people who hurt so hard they can't hope is faith. Hmm. Because it is an unimaginable hope, hope for something that is not that they can't. It's on the other side of the mountain. They don't know what's there but they continue walking toward it because they hope for it. It is their target.
1: Well, and I guess if it's the kind of hope where you're not figuring out probabilities, it's hard for somebody to shoot a hole in it because it's in a different... like you
0: can't take it from me because there is no probability to assess. It's
1: a completely different strain of hope. It's
0: just, yes, it's totally different. And I think that if a person is a person of faith listening to this and they hear me saying that the secret medicine for people who have lost their ability to hope is faith, Mm -hmm. that's gonna automatically feel really like beautiful and lovely, like, yes, I can return to my faith Mm -hmm. as a sustaining, motivating force when all else feels like it's gone. As an atheist whose hope is broken, (laughs) when I hear that the secret medicine is faith, it gives me a way to talk about my broken experience of hope, in language other people can understand because they under- they they everybody feels like it's like even difficult to describe to you yeah. the lack of relationship between my assessment of a desirable outcome and a justification for my choices and actions like my desire for Biden to be president and my assessment of its likelihood which is low would not justify the amount of effort that I'm investing in it
1: it's weird though it's almost like you Wanted to express something so badly that you went out and learned another language to learn how to express something. Yes.
0: That's exactly what I did.
1: Yeah. I would not have expected that from you. I
0: had to like go read a book for somebody to explain, like tell, what is the name for this thing that I have? Because it's not that. And when I say that it's not hope, when I say my hope is broken, when I say there is no relationship between my assessment of the likelihood of something and my justification for fantasies about it and... I mean, action toward it. Like there isn't any.
1: I was sitting right here. I was very confused by the concept of broken hope. Yeah. And you've been explaining this to me on and off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We've been like trying to like figure it out. And I still didn't
1: quite get it.
0: So what the language of unimaginable hope is faith gives me is a way to say something that I have that will help my therapist not worry about me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
0: When I say my hope is broken, but I have faith. That helps people to understand my internal world.
1: People get that.
0: Yeah. People hear the word faith and they feel like they know what that is. Yeah. And I, for a really long time, thought that I didn't have faith because I didn't believe in any kind of supernatural critter, as I call it.
1: But you don't need a supernatural critter, right? Like, to have faith, do you?
0: No, you. this is secular faith. The yeah. explicit language that Adrian Martin uses is secular faith. So if I'm Critter. a cancer patient who has gone through everything and nothing is working anymore, and I'm asked if I want to participate in a phase one medical trial just to test for safety, mm-hmm. and I know that it would be a shocking coincidence if it actually provided any medical benefit, and also I might be on the placebo anyway,
1: Yeah. Oh.
0: I would be, see, you have that feeling. Yeah. And I don't have that feeling of oh, because th- the odds of the placebo helping me and the medicine helping me are <laughs> almost equal. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. It's true.
0: <laughs> because what helps me is the sense that I am participating in advancing medical knowledge. Yeah,
1: but in a way, it's like there's it's a larger thing than you, but it's not supernatural. It's saying I'm one person of a billion, and I'm going to help progress medical science. Yeah, it's it's. But you don't. I'm need doing.
0: My part, my part is so small. You don't need the Holy Ghost for that. In the Ghost scheme of that. things. It has taken, so we come back to locus of control, self-efficacy, agency. My part oh, man. is so tiny.
1: But you chose it.
0: And the, the trajectory of my life has been paring down my locus of control to a realistic level. Uh-huh. Like I sort of grew up in this kind of arrogant sense that I could do anything because I was so smart and uh, so creative.
1: Yeah, I read comic books too.
0: I could do anything. Yeah.
1: I can save the world. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then the 2004 election happened Oof. and I worked so hard, <laughs> worked a, so hard.
1: We had a very different experience of that election.
0: And uh, my. I was just mad. If there is like a moment in my adulthood when my hope broke, it is the day after the 2004 election when I had worked so hard, I had done everything I could. And the promise of America is that hard work is rewarded. <laughs> Right. Surprise. Like I, the thing is I did my part and then some and everybody else wasn't there for me. They didn't back me up. Like I, it, it wasn't enough.
1: Are you sure you're Gen X? <laughs> maybe you're an early millennial.
0: I'm super Gen X. Okay, so
1: we're supposed to not believe that hard work is rewarded. I mean, maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm a millennial. I'm I don't kidding. know. We're, we're cuspers.
0: We're totally. Xennial. Xennial or Xennial. How do you pronounce it? Is it Zenial or I is it Xennial?
1: Zenial sounds better. Or you can just say Oregon Trail generation.
0: Yes, we we are definitely of the Oregon Trail generation. I played Oregon Trail uh, with little pieces of paper in a an envelope in the fifth grade. Oh wow! And then I played it on the computer. You know the green.
1: Yeah, I think I actually text. have. A, I have a copy. If you want me to bring it home, I have an Apple II GS.
0: I would probably have a like meltdown oh, of sure. just nostalgia I for know. sixth grade. Sixth grade, by the way. One of the darkest years of my life. Seventh for me. Very Seventh was real bad, too. Fourth through eighth. Not great.
1: Uh, okay. Fifth, fifth and sixth, nobody knew what to make of me.
0: So if there's... Oh, really?
1: Oh, yeah. And then around ninth again, I got terrifying.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can imagine you yeah. as a young person. Oh, yeah. Being like super angry and No, not,
1: not angry, actually. Just unpredictable. You never knew if I yes. was going to make the teacher laugh at the football player kind of person.
0: That actually uh, goes Chaotic. to the end of the book where she talks about the ways oh that wasn't me adrian martin talks about the ways we invest hope in other people's behavior that we predict that they are going to follow particular norms Mm -hmm. and we hope that and so for you to be unpredictable means that you are disappointing people's hope in you
1: Oh yes, as an adolescent, that was that was an expert thing I did.
0: Yeah, so if you're interested in the relationship between hope and trust, it begins to be explored in uh, the last chapter of How We Hope. Does that make sense? I think so. so okay, so my grand finale was going to be the Rumi poem that I have quoted before on the podcast and the revelation that the secret medicine is hope. But you got there.
1: I'm sorry. I'm when very, I was
0: halfway through.
1: I, I pay attention to what you say. God damn it! I'm terrible to watch movies with. That's why I stick to television shows.
0: I can tell how this is going to end. It must make it really hard to write. That must be like, because you're like, I already know how this is going to end. Why even bother writing the rest of it? Exactly. Everything's very predictable. Yeah. So the moral of the story is I don't have hope in the typical way, or I have hope and my hope is broken. Mm -hmm. But in its place, I have faith in something unimaginable.
1: And I actually like this because it's easy to worry about you. Yes. when I'm you're throwing worry, around terms like uh, "hope broken" and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, that sounds. It sounds yeah. really bad.
1: That sounds like radicalizing kind of stuff.
0: And I, I don't mean it, it to isn't be bad. That. No,
1: you're talking actually about a feedback loop, not your spirit. Right. And that's nice.
0: Yes. It's just there's a disconnect between my choices and my assessment of the probability of the immediate outcome toward which those actions or choices are supposed to move me and the world. I don't know what the relationship between agency and hope should be. All but one of the examples in the book are for outcomes that are within the control of an actor. So like your grades in a class.
1: So do they they talk about hope as something that can function without agency? Because I don't see that. I would hope that these dogs would stop fighting.
0: They're playing tug.
1: Is is the is the agency required for the hope?
0: It is. It is not identified. Okay. It's it's uh, justifying your fantasies, plans, and feelings with your assessment of the probability of a desirable outcome, which has nothing to do with individual agency or self-efficacy.
1: But there's no reason it can't. Like my head headcanon for hope could be that it requires, the, the agency is the hope.
0: It could, but then, so you can hope for a lot of things. You can hope it doesn't rain tomorrow over which you have zero control.
1: I can move my location.
0: That's not what people mean when they okay, say. Okay, I'm just <laughs> But you can also hope that you get an A on a test. And that's much more under like there are things you could do to make it more likely that you will get an A on that test.
1: Like blackmail the teacher.
0: For example. Yes,
1: exactly. (laughs) Jesus Christ.
0: (laughs) Right? There's things you can do.
1: Yeah, I've never done that though.
0: That's thinking outside the box. Because I was just like, study real hard and get a great night's sleep beforehand. Okay. I wanted to talk about the nature of hope. Mm -hmm. And this is the third episode in a row, I don't know if we're going to keep this or cut it, where I get to what I consider the end of the things I had to say, and I I, I truly don't know if anything that I've said or thought about will be helpful to anyone else. Okay, can I ask you a question anybody. then? Yeah.
1: So so my question for you is, this has to be helpful, because how many people have even asked this question before? You don't know. Clearly
0: somebody did, because there's a book about it.
1: Yeah, but who reads? Um <laughs> No, but seriously, though, I've, it's never occurred to me that there was like a feedback loop tied to hope and that there would be a separate channel of hope that didn't require a feedback loop. I don't see how that could not be helpful. You've just you've just opened up two whole worlds of hope, neither neither of which require a belief system. So that's awesome.
0: Maybe who this will help is anybody who feels exhausted from the effort of trying to sustain hope in the face of so much. Horror show, so much justification to believe that's not going to happen.
1: Switch over You to can, this, you can the let track. go.
0: Um, and I have I have a couple of helpful quotes. What Adrienne Martin writes about this idea of having hope based on actions rather than circumstances, unimaginable hope that is not assailable by anything imaginable. She says there is a form of flourishing that a person's circumstances can place out of reach. The world or other people can make it impossible for you even to approximate this form of flourishing. But when the target of your hope is unimaginable, this is a form of flourishing that a person's circumstances cannot place out of reach. Hmm. And that is faith. Faith is a form of flourishing that no change of circumstances can put out of reach because it is defined by your actions, by your choices in context.
1: So it's basically, it's a kind of hope no one can take away from you?
0: Exactly. So though my regular hope is broken.
1: You had this backup hope.
0: My faith is intact.
1: Oh, interesting. I like that. Does it help you
0: to worry less about me?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And there's a whole question to go into with my therapist about, like, why my hope is broken and when my hope got broken. Was it in that period of life between fourth and eighth grade when I was miserable and isolated? Or was it just in 2004 when the election happened?
1: Or if we want to get Bigfoot, maybe it happened in a previous lifetime.
0: Maybe it happened in a previous lifetime and I'm going to need a different kind of therapist to help me
1: with that. I can get you one of those.
0: Thank you, dear.
1: Uh, but so would you say then that if you have this kind of faith that that's a place upon which you can grow back that other hope? Is that, is that like a ground that, that will always be there to grow the other stuff back? Or is that a completely unreasonable question?
0: I think it's a reasonable question. My intuitive sense is that the answer is no. There is no growing back. My regular hope, it's broken. But again, because my hope is broken, That answer, no, Hmm. does not justify or not any choices I might make toward trying to make it grow back.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Just because I don't think it'll happen isn't a reason for me not to nourish my faith and develop the sustaining motivational force inside me. Maybe it will. I have no way of assessing it, and my assessment of its probability is not a justification for not doing anything to try.
1: Great question. Because
0: my hope is broken.
1: Right on. We, yeah.
0: <laughs> that's a good question. That is a good question. Because it, it like brought up an immediate example of how uh, my hope is broken.
1: Yeah, we've established. Therefore,
0: I don't think it can be fixed. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I don't think it could never be fixed.
1: And also, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily in a position to answer that question objectively. Yeah.
0: Exactly. I have, I but, have, I
1: have no way of knowing. That's OK. <laughs>
0: Interesting. Well, I hope this has been helpful for someone other than me. I it's feel been like, helpful for me. Oh, good! Hooray!
1: <laughs> I really thought you were in trouble there.
0: Yeah. No. No. Hope is broken. Hope
1: broken doesn't well-being. seem very hopeful.
0: Yeah, and the whole thing about hope being broken is that there's no relationship between my hope and my well-being, and that's great because I have faith, and that is a a kind of flourishing that is non-contingent. Okay. So if you are a feminist who's been overwhelmed and exhausted, and part of what exhausts you is the effort to sustain hope, allow me to introduce you to faith. And I don't mean faith in any supernatural critter.
1: Yeah, let that, let that regular hope cycle sit fallow and let the soil replenish itself sure. and go over here.
0: Yeah, crop rotation. Yeah. A crop rotation of hope.
1: There you go, there's a title.
0: <laughs> That's not gonna mean anything to anybody. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. Wrap it
1: up, please. The
0: dogs are going to get very unhappy. And that was this episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. I'm Emily Nagoski.
1: And I'm not Amelia.
0: And you can follow us on the internets at FSP2020 mostly on Instagram. You can email us, feminist survival project 2020 at gmail.com. Let me know if your hope is broken, but you still have faith, or if you have been exhausting yourself trying to sustain hope when it is so difficult and now you can let it go. So I'm like sparing you some energy. Let me know. And in the meantime,
1: thanks for listening.
0: I mean, apart from Bigfoot. Bigfoot's real. Exactly. I've met him. <laughs> the Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media podcasts.